Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hey, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. Uh, We're on Never Sleeps Network at neversleepsnetwork.com or your favorite podcatcher, wherever you uh, get your podcasts. Before we start this week, I just want to say thank you to everyone who came out to the Mississauga Comic Expo. It was nice meeting you all. Uh, Some people had been listening from day one. Others had never heard of us and was just getting to know us at the convention thank you to all the new fans that we made and hopefully this is your first episode that uh, you're listening to well this week we have a special episode we have three people in to talk about wayward sisters it's an anthology published by to comics the same comic publisher that uh, publishes the toronto comics anthology Uh, They've done four volumes now. They're working on a fifth volume. If you listen to our Stephanie Cook episode, she is editor of the upcoming fifth volume. I've contributed to the fourth volume, Young at Heart. And uh, many of our guests here today have contributed to Toronto Comics as well. But this is a spin-off anthology that uh, former editor Alison O'Toole, uh, she was a assistant editor to uh, Andrew Stevenson for, I think it was the fourth volume uh, with Erin Feldman. She appeared on our show in a previous episode with Erin promoting that book. But now she's struck out on her own and she's doing a book called Wayward Sisters, published by T.O. Comics. Wayward Sisters is an anthology of monster stories by women and uh, women-identified people and also members of the LGBTQ community. So we have Allison here as the lead editor to tell us a little bit about the project. They're doing a Kickstarter right now. We also have M. Blank here, who is the assistant editor, and she's also writing a story. Allison is too. 
And then we have Lorena Torres Loiza, who is writing a story as well. So uh, we got a lot of ladies, but I think they're doing a groundbreaking project, something that uh, the comic industry needs, the comic industry talks about needing in terms of diversity and more female voices, but they haven't actually done anything like this that I know of. So welcome, ladies. Tell me about this project. I'm very excited about it. Thanks so much, Aaron. So yeah, as, as you mentioned, Wayward Sisters is, we're calling it an anthology of monstrous women, but women we mean to be inclusive of both women and non-binary identifying people. So people who uh, are gender fluid or gender non-conforming uh, are included as well, both uh, as creators and uh, characters in the book. And it's, uh, yeah, a collection of monster stories where all of the monsters are women and not binary, as are all the creators. That's kind of the a longer version of the elevator pitch for the, for the book. <laughs> That's awesome. So how did the idea form in your mind? Uh, I guess we can take it from... I guess when you were editing uh, the Toronto Comics Anthology, because did, did it start there in terms of trying to uh, gestate and stay, uh, get on your own from there or? Um, yeah, I was interested, you know, I started uh, with Toronto Comics on volumes three and four Okay. because I was interested in editing. So that was definitely a, a sort of future goal of mine to have my own book. But gosh, I think the idea for this, the sort of base genesis for it actually predates my time with Toronto Comics. It was just, I didn't really have the skills or experience or resources yet to put it together back then. Right, and now you're also editing for Chapter House, I should mention, Yes, right? yes. So you have a very robust editing background at this point. Yeah, I've, I've got a lot more under my belt and I kind of know how the game is played and we have like templates and everything from Toronto Comics in terms of how we build and how we ask for submissions and all that kind of stuff. And so all of that experience has been super valuable because it's just sort of, oh yeah, and then this stage and then this stage and it's how we always do it. And that makes it a lot less stressful when it's um, fewer unknowns, I guess. But the actual idea got, I don't even remember what it was that um, sparked it. I've just loved monsters since I was a kid. And growing up loving monsters, I just got frustrated that there were so few who were girls. And if they were girl monsters in a story, they were usually like really sexualized and very for the straight male gaze. So, you know, you'd get that or you'd get the girlfriend of the monster or like a sexy monster hunter or something. And there are a lot of those stories that I still love. And obviously the exceptions, things like Ginger Snaps that everyone always cites because it's a great movie, but there's still kind of the exception to the rule. So I, especially meeting other women, wanted to start making my own stories and giving other people the platform to put their own stories out there. Uh, and of course I'm, I'm speaking for women because like non-binary monsters are like not even a thing anyone's really considering. So that's an even bigger hole in a lot of ways. So I just wanted to make a book with the kinds of stories that I'd been wanting to read for pretty much my whole life. Nice. So did you 
approach uh, Andrew about doing that? Because he provided the vehicle for publishing, right? Um, he actually approached me. Okay. Originally, his thing was he wanted to just do like a women-focused horror anthology, um, which I liked, but I think is still pretty broad. And with something like Hogtown Horror being so recent, I wasn't sure there was as much of a market. And this was an idea I'd had for a while. So uh, I kind of counter-pitched him on this instead. Uh, and he was into it. But um, he just wanted to start branching out and become a publisher more than like an editor specifically uh, but you know he could only he can't edit multiple books at once um so he wanted to branch out a little bit and experiment with publishing um other stuff and because we'd been working together for a couple years he asked me if i wanted to front a book like that and he knew that i was a big horror fan and i love the idea of a women's horror book but uh, i just had this monster idea that i loved so <laughs> i asked if i could do that instead. that's awesome and andrew also i think i remember hearing that like because the canadian art grant landscape is sort of restrictive you can't qualify for certain grants if you're also writing in the book that you're editing i guess yeah i think that's I'm not sure that's still a goal necessarily of his, I think. But yeah, there's a lot of rules around. And if you're writing in some percentage of the number of books that come out in a year or that the press is published, then you're considered a vanity press, I guess. Right. And so you're not qualified. So that's so. why he'd want to step back and be a publisher, too, because he can sort of qualify for more money to fund. Yeah. Projects. In the future, I think that that would be he would really like to do that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but that would mean I think he'd have to do a full year where he didn't write in any books and he'd have to be publishing um, at least one or two more than he's doing right now. So, so this fingers is just, crossed, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is just the beginning yeah. of that. Then. Yeah. The overall long-term goal, I mm -hmm, guess. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So when did you start actually putting this together? When did it go from beyond an idea to something that you were executing? Gosh, I think Andrew and I talked last summer. I feel like I actually approached Margot like last Halloween. I remember was, talking on Halloween yeah, last some year. Yeah, it was ago, wasn't it? Yeah, when we sort of first got the ball rolling. Um, but things got really serious just before TCAF this year, so like late April. That was when we kind of hashed out all the details. So I talked to Andrew about things like budget and timelines and all those kinds of things um, so that we could be ready for TCAF. But I, I commissioned the cover last December. So, and the logo both were commissioned last December. So Margot um, or and Blankier, aka Margot, my uh, my other editor, my co-editor. I think you were pretty on board by then, by the end of last year. I was on board from right from when Allison yeah. asked. I was like, <laughs> yes, sign me up. I'm all over this. Whatever you want me to do. So Allison, do it. I think it's important like to know sort of what were you looking for in the women and the uh, non-gender conforming people that you were selecting? Uh, where did you get them from? How did you find your contributors? We had an open submissions process. As I said, at TCAF last year, or earlier this year, gosh, feels so much longer ago. I We'd made postcards that just said, we want you, and I handed them out to as many people as I could. Um, but we also just put stuff on social media. So we tweeted, we put it out on Tumblr and Facebook and stuff, and relied heavily on that. So we ended up getting, I think, 215 story pitches and 110 artist pitches. I think it was way more than either of us expected. I thought we were going to get may maybe 30 pitches. We're 30, I thought, and then maybe 50 if we were lucky. <laughs> 
that was that was a dot in the distance yeah (laughs) i was hoping for a hundred pitches or so because we got 73 for volume four of toronto comics so i was like i feel reasonable We, we you know we have a wider pool of people who can apply but yeah the response just blew me away like completely out of the water i was so thrilled but in terms of what we were looking for just something new something that surprised us i think because um we're both big fans of monsters and of the gothic and of horror and stuff and so we've both just from having consumed so much uh, media in this kind of genre this kind of concept we've just seen a lot before so we wanted i think stuff that seemed different that seemed fresh that was using a metaphor in a new way or was just like a unique monster or a unique idea or a unique setting or something so some of the stories are just cute some of them are really um thought-provoking and interesting and different but a lot of it was just that as well as getting uh, a diversity of contributor voices as well as a like a wide variety of monsters because it would get super repetitive it was like here's six vampire stories out of 20 you know so we definitely um had a lot of things we were balancing but a lot of it was just about something that like we wanted a variety of stories that felt really different from everything that we'd seen before I think there's a fairly standard tropes that come along with women monsters in popular media. And I think the goal was really to have an interesting and provocative cross-section of approaches to monstrous women or monstrous gender non-conforming characters. Like, we didn't just want the standard horror gothic thing because it's so you know it's got a lot of fans and it's interesting but it's not fresh it's not fresh the way that Allison really envisioned this project being a fresh project and so when we're bringing in you know the sort of cute stories or kid-friendly stories we were still trying to assemble stories that approached monstrous women in an interesting and provocative way even if they're kid friendly i think they still really bring something new to an otherwise very staid kind of genre i think as a side note on the submissions process i think there was also like a huge hunger for a project like this because i remember uh when i first heard about it it was actually like a tcaf and it seemed like a great idea and immediately after in the following weeks like five or ten completely separate people that had nothing to do with each other told me about the project. So it just took a gentle push, but like a lot of people really wanted to be part of something like this. So maybe that's why you guys got so many, but yeah. Thank you. I, I think that the response of retweeting and re... I guess not re-Instagramming, but re-Tumbling and all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff... It was amazing. Like, it was really, the response was crazy. And the media, I guess the quote unquote media coverage, if we're uh, <laughs> call it that. Yeah, we can call it that. It's like, I'll just give you a quick example. I, not to name drop, but I interned at Marvel a few years ago. And I was originally hired because Gail Simone had left. And she told my boss who hired me that he should be encouraging more female hires within the company. This was almost 10 years ago already. And she retweeted our call for submissions. And I thought it was just such a nice kind of almost like a full circle thing. And she didn't even know, you know, that she doesn't know who I am. She had Mm -hmm. no idea what 
what that meant to me personally, but it felt like a very full circle kind of message. <laughs> yeah. It seemed to me, like as a white male, that like the industry was hungering for something like this. Like just in general, they wanted someone to pick up the ball and do this, particularly with, you know, things like Jason Aaron's Thor and like the efforts of mainstream comics to become more diverse, like, you know, whether they're good at it or bad at it or, you know, it's immaterial, but it seemed like this was the right moment in time for something like this. We're also following some other um, anthologies that are doing not the same thing, obviously, or we wouldn't be where we are, but similar things like, you know, Hope Nicholson's uh, projects like Secret Loves of Geek Girls and um, her Gothic Tales of Haunted, wait, Gothic Tales of Haunted Love. Yes, that's correct. Um, and Spike Trotman's whole of oeuvre of works um but you know even stuff like the smut peddler right like there's stuff like that um and there's valor and um enough space for everyone else and the beyond books like there are so many projects out there that have a focus on inclusion things like elements as well that was all uh, creators of color i think that in the anthology space and the kickstarter space there's a lot more a lot more projects happening if that's the easiest way to say i guess um so following on that, I think there are a lot of fans who are excited about this kind of stuff and who might even recognize some of our creators who've been in some of these other books. So I think outside of the mainstream, even like there's a proven audience of people who are supporting and coming out for these projects in droves. So there was a confidence, I think, for us to break from, you know, like this book, we're asking for more than we ever have on any of the Toronto Comics books for um, on Kickstarter. But there was never a huge concern in my mind that we'd be able to get that because we see the audience of these other books and there's a, a clear hunger for this kind of content. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask a really obvious question that I probably shouldn't be asking, but I want it to be on the record. Why is it important that these stories get told? And like, why do we need uh, these voices? Um, I think th conventional thinking in mainstream comics seems to me to have long been that including certain quote-unquote types of creators necessarily limits the kind of stories you can tell and it also and it similarly limits your audience that you can't make you basically can't be a profitable enterprise if you're limiting the kind of stories you can tell and i think an anthology like ours and you know, like the anthologies that Allison was saying and things like Moonshot and, and similar works are really proving that stories by diverse groups of creators, I mean, the limit is to say, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but the limit is really the creator's imaginations. And I think there's a lot of boundary pushing in anthologies like these. And the reason that these stories are important is because the conventional, traditional thinking isn't serving its purpose all that well anymore. I mean, so many mainstream comic publishers are struggling a little bit, aren't they? And yet we achieved our Kickstarter goal really, I think, very, very quickly. And a lot mm -hmm. of anthologies are doing very well. I mean, Valor was incredibly successful and Moonshot did so well. I think 
these stories are important to tell because they're validating, even if they're fantasy they're or horror or science fiction or whatever, they're validating people's experiences in a way that so many people are so hungry for. And at the same time, proving that these things are profitable. I think these stories are important because traditional publishers really have to take notice of them mm-hmm. and perhaps adjust their thinking about these kinds of things. Yeah, totally. And as a reader, um, if you are within a demographic that's never portrayed in comics, it's amazing. It's like a breath of fresh air when you get something that um, actually relates to you. And if if you're not, it's also really cool as a reader to find like a whole new universe in like a whole set of concerns that you never consider and things like that. So as a reader, you're always sort of looking for really interesting new things. So it just seems like an obvious place to, to find that kind of exciting storytelling. Do you think the more these sorts of anthologies, the more diverse voices get published more often that the readership will start holding, or have they already started, holding uh, mainstream comics to account in terms of demanding these sorts of things? I think part, like the audience of people that are coming out for anthologies in droves, a lot of people are holding them to account, whether it's, you know, on Twitter, whether it's writing articles. But I think a lot of people are also just exhausted with having those arguments and getting into those conversations. You know, people are getting harassed off Twitter on the regular still for speaking out against publishers, speaking out against comic festivals um, for their lack of diversity and lack of inclusion. And I think people want to hold them to account and are, a lot of people are out there doing their best, but it still can feel so defeating and like so endless, I guess. And there are definitely people at all of those publishers who are doing their best. But you look at someone like Heather Antos this summer. Did you see the make mine milkshake hashtag this summer where Heather Antos posted a selfie of a bunch of women who work at Marvel? having milkshakes and got just harassed by men saying, oh, look, like this is why Marvel's going downhill. This is why Marvel sucks now. This is why, this is why, this is why. Um, to the point where, yeah, like these people started a whole hashtag in support of her because the harassment got so bad because she posted a photo of women who work at Marvel having milkshakes. Like it's ridiculous. I don't understand the thinking. Was the thinking they're if, women? If they're having milkshakes, they're lazy and they're not doing. No, their they're jobs? women. Okay. Yeah. they're women, so they're not doing their okay. jobs and they're the ruining comics. Is, uh, okay. The thinking is they're women. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I think there's another. I've been talking a lot about profitability, I guess. But, but that's I've important. Read, you support yeah, with money, right? right? I mean, it's there's there's a lot of demographic research about people who consume the typical Marvel DC monthlies. And it's a very loyal demographic and it's a very consistent demographic. But every year that demographic is spending less and less on physical comics. And the new wave of comic consumers are kids and young people who are mostly concentrating their money in graphic novels and anthologies and collections and and things like that. And digital. And digital, yeah. I mean, Scholastic has had huge, huge success with with that kind of market. Traditional book publishers have had a lot of success with that market. And that market is not 
necessarily looking for the same things that the traditional comic buying demographic is looking for. So if comic publishers are looking to build loyal lifetime readers, they have to consider, of course, they have to consider the readers that they've had throughout their lifetimes, but they also have to consider the demographic that's coming up, that's going to be consuming, and that's that has the the buying power. The buying power, absolutely. That has the money to to buy the comics and, and also the longevity. Yeah, eventually the old audience is going to get old and die. I, I mean, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> well, well, I mean, the thing is, like, where would Marvel be right now without Disney, and where would DC be without without Warner Brothers, exactly, right? Exactly. And those multimedia conglomerates are trying to maximize their profitability and if tradi- if mainstream comic publishers can't stay above the line then there are going to be issues and i think nobody wants nobody wants to see the death of the traditional monthly comic but the product has to adjust to suit the market right. and i think there are a lot of people who are hungry for a lot of different kinds of books mm-hmm. some people who are I think a lot of people are willing to read a lot of different things, and I don't think that these kinds of projects and these kinds of stories necessarily are the death knell of, you know, Amazing Spider-Man and, mm-hmm. like, tradi- you know, the traditional yeah. the characters that everybody loves. I think these things can coexist, and... Yeah, period. And also if... <laughs> kind of petered out there. Also if <laughs> comics don't want to just be, like, pamphlets for movie promotion. Yeah, exactly. And we don't want to see an industry where the characters that are in movies get the most promotion and the most play, whereas characters that aren't or are with other movie studios get buried. Uh, they have to start, like, diversifying uh, their audience a little bit. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing that I'm sort of wondering about for the future a little bit is if mainstream publishers will at some point open up and be like, yeah, this is something that we need and just sort of start incorporating those things. Or if they won't, and then someone else will be able to swoop in and like take that niche market for themselves. Um, it's true. There are yeah. a lot of a lot of hungry indie comics <laughs> publishers out there who who are very closely attuned to their market. And I think, I don't know if I would say that Allison has ambitions of world domination, <laughs> but she's certainly evil. It's true. Um, <laughs> but I feel like there are a few people I would really have to take down, even in our sphere, before I could do any kind of domination, uh, nor do I have any interest in taking them down. It should be put on the record. Um, but someone like like Spike Trotman this week announced she's raised a million dollars on Kickstarter projects. Holy crap. That's it's amazing. Amazing. That's phenomenal. So and I'm she's amazing. I know, I know. I just I got to talk to her for a bit at New York Comic Con and I was just like trying to be chill the whole time. And it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, I'd love to just like talk to you about our dogs. Oh wow. Um but yeah, she's like such an and um, such an inspiration um with the work that she's doing. But like, yeah, she's she's built a company that's like mostly funded through Kickstarter. Yeah, I mean, and oh. by finding ways to, you know, just get around like diamond and all these 
sort of comic shop means of traditional means of selling comics I think that's incredible and I love what she's doing I love what Hope Nicholson's doing like there are so many people out there that aren't selling necessarily you know the floppies in stores or in, in local shops and stuff but have found a way to make and fund and get comics into the hands of people who want to read them and so I hope that people like this you know can keep making things and can keep getting them out there and hopefully their audience and their financial base will keep growing because that is something that has to be considered our finances are a huge thing in comics because they cost a lot to make um so i hope that it becomes like projects like ours start to become a little bit more profitable maybe people will be willing to pay a little bit more if they understand like how much it takes to give artists a living wage (laughs) but uh i hope that that just keeps growing and i think it's not showing any signs of stopping right now but there are definitely people out there who are doing really amazing things outside even like the indie market you know that are like this this new internet-based uh economy almost for comics but it's really cool yeah that's awesome and i see it every month it's like even on this podcast, like there's always somebody who has another Kickstarter that wants to promote a Kickstarter on my podcast. And I sort of have to balance that with uh, getting guests that people know and want to hear from mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, part of managing this podcast is introducing people to new voices uh, constantly, but then also trying to get, you know, the big names mm-hmm. and people like that as well. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm definitely seeing that because if I wanted to populate this entire podcast with Kickstarters, I could all the time and I would never, <laughs> I would never run out of them. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> so, um, but I want to take a little bit of a step back and then we'll return to Wayward Sisters just because Lorena and Margo, we've, we haven't had you on. So I want to learn a little bit about uh, you guys. Uh, since I'm looking directly at Margo, I'm going to start with you. Uh, Margo, how uh, did you get into comics? Where were you raised? What was your growing up life like? And how did you find comics or how did comics find you? I was born and raised in Toronto and I have an older brother. So like many children of the 90s, I came to comics through the X-Men cartoon, which I, one of the greatest birthday gifts I ever got was the bootleg on DVD. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was really the start. And I have to say that my introduction to the comics world was really through television. I was very, I was a hardcore fan of Spider-Man cartoon. I even watched the old 50s and 60s cartoons late at night kind of thing. Um, And my brother always had really great taste in comics. He introduced me to Runaways. He introduced me to The Killing Joke and all the great Batman trades. And I sort of always had a sensibility oriented towards comics and pop culture and that whole, I guess, geek culture. And when I was an undergrad, I was living in New York and I was looking for internships and I applied to Marvel and got a production internship. And um, Can I just interrupt for a second? Yeah. What were you studying in New York? I originally was studying film and decided it was not for me at all. <laughs> so I was your run-of-the-mill finance soaking up liberal arts major and I I was still very interested in writing and script writing and all that sort of stuff and I ended up in production at Marvel and the people I worked with were 
great. They were real mentors to me and they were wonderful. But I started thinking more in terms of my future in editorial. And I was hired on as an intern for a few more semesters after that by Nate Cosby, who he's no longer with Marvel, but his former boss had been Gail Simone. And that's how that whole story kind of weighs into things. And I was brought on because of my love for Runaways. And I got to work on World War Hulk. And there's a caption in there right at the end that I put in that I'm still very, (laughs) I still ride the wave of that. (laughs) But he was, um, Nate Cosby was, he was a wonderful mentor. And he introduced me to Chris Claremont and Fred Van Lente and, and everyone was really great. I got to write an issue of Iron Man and um, contribute some mini comics and all that sort of stuff. And then I left New York, Disney bought Marvel, and I believe that that was the end of my comics career. (laughs) What made you leave New York? School was over and New York was just expensive and competitive and... There were no trees and there's only one big park. Mm. (laughs) It was just, it was not for me. I was still looking for something. I have actually, although I'm living in Toronto again now, I lived in Dublin, Ireland on and off for about six years after I was living in New York. I just never stopped reading comics, but my interest kind of expanded to include manga and I think it's manhwa. I hope I'm pronouncing that. I think so. Yeah, I think yeah, I yeah. think that's. I think I've got that right. What is manhwa? Manhwa is Korean and Chinese comics that are inspired by the manga form. There's not a lot that has been translated. I do not read any other languages other than English. I'll state that for the record. But there are there are a few titles, and there's a lot of building popularity and a growing online presence. Um, and I never forgot my love of comics. And I maintained my friendship with Aaron Feldman, who um, encouraged me to submit to Toronto Comics Volume 3. How do you know Aaron Feldman? He and I went to high school together and stayed friends. He is an awesome guy, and I will, I absolutely, I've always loved his writing, and I will follow him to the ends of the earth, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and contributing to Toronto Comics was a really great experience, and got me looped in with Allison and Andrew Stevenson, and just kind of maintaining those relationships was it was basically a direct lead to me sitting here right now (laughs) um but at the same time i've my interest in publishing has moved more towards traditional books but i'm hoping to see a little i guess it's not a renaissance because that's a renaissance but a a growth of graphic novels um, within mainstream publishers in Canada. There isn't a huge support for that kind of stuff with Penguin and HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster strictly in Canada. Most of what um, is put out is edited and published in the U.S. and is distributed by the Canadian affiliates. But I think... Like every media yeah like in the sense that like ctv gets to claim that they're the number one network in canada but they claim it on the backs of mostly american content yeah yeah (laughs) exactly i mean it's which is such a shame because i mean there are so many incredible canadian content creators like artists and writers directors musicians whatever and like there's just apparently people in the U.S., and this is, uh, I'm painting an extremely broad stroke, so I really apologize if I'm offending any 
Americans who know their Canadian geography, but apparently a sizable portion of Americans don't know the difference between Montreal and Toronto, for example, or couldn't name a Canadian celebrity other than Justin Bieber, or, you know, the knowledge of the, of the Canadian media landscape is so, so limited. I think the sense with Canadian creators is always that Canadian media companies could be doing more. Um, I certainly feel that's true of Canadian television, my God, but that's... A whole other beast, isn't it? <laughs> we need a Captain Canuck. We need Netflix to make a Captain Netflix Canada Captain Canuck TV show, like with strokes of Daredevil. How about that? Yeah, let's let's do it. Yeah. Well, That's why, definitely a decision that I can make. And yeah. why hasn't yeah. the cartoon that they've already made been picked up by like any of the mainstream networks or things like that? Right? Like that would be awesome. Rights issues are so complicated, and I think a lot of the time when rights to whatever properties are sold, they can get more money from the states and they get um, American, they get North American rights. So Canada, Canadian content producers don't end up having that much control. It's, it's so complicated. I think even people who work within those industries don't necessarily fully understand them or they, you know, agents and rights salespeople and acquisitions people are, they all do what they can, but it's so hard to compete with the American dollar really at the end of the day. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and the sheer scope of the American behemoth, like just, and the, I guess the way that Canadians view themselves, like we, sometimes we have a bit of a self-esteem problem in terms of our own contributions to things. So I think a lot of the people that work in, in those industries and have control of those industries sort of put America on a pedestal in the sense that like mm -hmm. their content is automatically better because it's from America. So, and I think that's just how it's always been. So that's yeah. how people are always doing it. And uh, it's sort of changing, but not enough, I guess. I think it's, I think it's, it's just kind of the reality that you're always, if you're a Canadian content producer, it's the reality that you're always fighting against. It's, it's hard to imagine that, I mean, we're a small country compared, right? We have limited resources in terms of entertainment money. And I think that's never going to stop being a problem. But indie creators like Allison and like Andrew are using the resources that they have to create content that's either uniquely Canadian or unique in some other way, even if it's not uniquely Canadian, Wayward Sisters has contributors from all over the world, but it's putting a stamp and it's, you know, Canadian branding yourself as Canadian is not necessarily, I think the smartest, depending on the project, of course, it's not necessarily the smart, the best marketing strategy, but it's always, I think it's always at the back of our minds. Like we are Canadian and the Canadian ethos or whatever you want to call it is informs everything that we're trying to do. Right. Right. Alison, I wanted to ask you two things. Mm -hmm. One, what do you like about Margot? Why do you, <laughs> uh, <laughs> why do you want to, I know. I, I, Nothing. I, I have to ask why, why did you want to work with her? What do you like about her writing? Since we are talking about her and her life and her rise mm -hmm. in comics and oh, sorry, that I sort of thing. So, long, I? so what is, 
the thing that makes you uh, want to work with her and and how did you guys meet and what is what is your working relationship and personal relationship like well, we, we met through volume three of Toronto Comics, as Margo mentioned. Um, I edited her story because it was horror-flavored, horror so I kind of grabbed that one. We were divvying up the stories. But yeah, working with Aaron, I also became pretty good friends with him, so uh, started getting to know a lot of his friends really well, including Margot. And... I think just like talking to Margot about your PhD in in English lit partially because we we're both, but we you you had, oh, you had to go and throw that out there, didn't you? Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say I think a lot of the you did quite a bit of writing on um, on the Gothic, and that's a, just like a pet interest of mine as well. Like I really like horror and sort of pulpy fiction from like the nineteenth century. It's just a weird thing that I'm really into that I learned Margot is into as well. For those who don't know, what is the gothic? You'd probably be better explaining it than I am. Since I did just throw out your PhD. Oh, well. (laughs) It's what you get at Hot Topic. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it started. In the context we're talking about, the gothic literature has a lot of certain spooky tropes and tends to have very archetypal characters and a lot of Haunted castles, deserted moors, ghosts, tempting ladies, evil foreign men, evil usually. foreign <laughs> men. Um, Is it also very Victorian? There's yeah. kind of two. Like there was a gothic, uh, like a romantic, pre-romantic gothic at the end of the 18th century, and then a late Victorian revival at the end of the 19th century. Okay. But yeah, it's so it's like the things that I like about gothic are how sort of heavily emotional everything is and everything is so overly dramatic and yes um, nobody ever thinks about anything they only feel their feelings yeah and and it doesn't (laughs) matter if things make sense as long as they're like dramatic and evocative and stuff like that you know like there's the famous the castle of toronto is arguably the first gothic novel and like it opens with a like a young guy getting killed by a helmet that I think falls from the sky, like yeah, a, giant a giant helmet, helmet yeah. kills him on his wedding day, which, and there's no reason. It's like family curse, maybe, but there's yeah. no reason. And then the helmet is just there in the courtyard for the rest of the book and it's bananas. <laughs> and then his like young bride is just stuck with the family yes. for the rest of the book. The father's like, the father says, oh, my son can no longer marry you, so I guess you're marrying me now. Even though I'm already married. Yeah, even though I'm already married, but who cares about her? And Yeah, it's yeah. really weird. Um, but yeah, it, and then from there, you know, it's the sort of the same tradition where you get Frankenstein, you get Dracula, you get the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and a lot of these kind of pillars of, of modern horror. But yeah, it's just, it's a literary period, I think is super fun and super engaging. Um, and one of the reasons is that it is like it's so ripe for study now because it's so reflective of like cultural anxieties and taboos at the times that the books were written and the monsters and like a lot of the at least the good ones are so metaphorical and are so interesting and can be interpreted in so many ways um and so talking to margo about any of that stuff and finding out we had this mutual interest in this stuff it just made me feel like we were really on the same page about this kind of stuff and why it's important and why it's interesting 
And yeah, I just, I trusted her storytelling instincts from working together on volume three and seeing her work there as well as in Hogtown Horror. These sort of subtle psychological horror stories, which I thought were really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. And then, and even after that, we, we, we met up and had like a long brunch where we talked about what this book was and what it meant and what we wanted from the stories and stuff. So it seemed like we were on the same page about stuff because like, I didn't want this to be a solely horror book as much as I'm talking about horror now, but that understanding of horror and why monster horror is important, I think extends to why monster stories are important regardless of the genre. And so, yeah, for all those reasons, I just kind of figured like we have similar tastes, we have similar desires for what the book should be um and you know sometimes we 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 don't see everything exactly the same way but we can kind of talk it out and i think i really respect margo's opinions and ideas on stuff so um yeah that was how we came together and then yeah like through (laughs) hanging out at aaron's place and stuff so and you like her writing as well yeah obviously yes Yeah, she hates it. (laughs) Yeah, it's terrible. That's awesome. I don't know. She was just there. Uh, That's my real answer for you. (laughs) I thought she was talking to me, so I said yes. (laughs) She was so awkward after that. Couldn't recover. That's awesome. The other question I had for you, Allison, was Mm -hmm. a smaller question. Okay. Just because uh, this is published by Teo Comics, Mm -hmm. and most of the stuff published by Teo Comics is, you know, the Toronto Comics Anthology, and there's spin-offs from Toronto Comics, the Hogtown Horror stuff that That's actually not enough. That's not a formal, yeah. Yeah. Um, Hogtown Horror is actually a separate project, so a lot of people that worked on Toronto Comics but isn't published by Toronto Comics. Yeah, I was going to explain that. that, Yeah. Like, I think Nelson DeRocha edited like the first volume of Toronto Comics and then yes. and then went off to do Hogtown Horror. Uh, first or possibly first two. Okay. I think he was still on board for volume, volume two. Volume two, right, right. Uh, him and Malcolm as well. Yeah, but Hogtown Horror, I should clarify, is not under the TO Comics banner. It's just a sort of a spin-off inspired by spiritual brother of it. I yeah, guess. yeah, I think that's fair to say. Okay, cool. My question is. That those books, that that branch of books, they're very uh, concerned for good reason because it's Toronto Comics Anthology with having people who are Canadian, people from Toronto, that sort of thing. But you open submissions up to everyone. Uh, why did you do that? Um, just wanted a larger pool of people. Toronto for those other books is part of its selling point. Mm-hmm. And it felt limiting for a book that didn't need to have Toronto in it. Like, it didn't need to have that as part of its hook or part of its selling point. So to limit our creator pool to people in Toronto, just there's nothing uh, about people here that gives them a leg up on this content the the way that it would be for Hogtown or Toronto Comics. So they're just it it seemed like it would just be limiting our pool of contributors we ended up uh, taking a bunch of people from toronto like we have i think 15 contributors out of 40 or so who are from toronto right and there's people that you know and want yeah exactly um but having the perspective of being in toronto doesn't add anything to your story with this particular concept uh and i wanted the chance to get to work with people from all over so we have uh, a pair from brazil we have uh, someone from poland we have a pair from malta so we actually do have a little bit more of an international perspective on things which i thought would just give us a wider pool of stories and a wider pool of perspectives 
because I, I definitely want to support the local community of comics creators. I'm invested in that. And again, I did hire quite a number of people from Toronto, but uh, I didn't think that that necessarily gave us like any kind of advantage. Right. And also like hiring internationally gives you exposure to other horror cultures, right? Yeah, I don't know that we saw too much of that, if I'm being honest, but definitely like different comic styles and different approaches to comics um, you could see in, in the book. But yeah, that was definitely something we were interested in and just sort of seeing um, what other people had to say about the topic, I guess. And to, like, and to get you to different markets, like it's a lot easier to sell this in the States if we're not being like, it's Toronto, you know? Do you have any known names among the contributors that people might recognize? Uh, Katie Shanahan uh, of Silly Kingdom has a pretty, like she's a local creator who's got a pretty decent following. Uh, Megan Carney has uh, done some work for Disney Princess and does a Beauty and the Beast webcomic. Stephanie Cook, who you've already had on, um, and Cara McGee, who's done Over the Garden Wall. Uh, Cassandra Kaw, who's a fiction writer, like a prose fiction writer primarily, but has been nominated for... I believe British fantasy awards and that kind of thing. So we definitely have some names that we wouldn't necessarily have been able to get in a Toronto based anthology. Like I was a big fan of Cassandra's work already. So when she pitched, I kind of went, Senpai has noticed me. So um, that was very exciting for me because I'm a big fan. Um, And Kara is also just fantastic. Her, her work in over the garden wall is amazing. And I've got some of her um, like mini comics I bought from her a couple years ago. Ago, so getting to work with her was really exciting but other people whose work I wasn't necessarily familiar with but are fantastic um, like I'm, I'm really excited about the people that we uh, can work with but yeah maybe not as many um, I think those are the big the main names people would recognize probably yeah. speaking of people you're working with uh, Lorena Hi. how did you come to this book I'm sorry that we've sort of like limited the conversation to this side of the room it's been so enlightening actually. but <laughs> Yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> but I want to get over to you because you're just as much a contributor to this as everyone else here. So how did you find this project? And uh, more generally, how did you uh, find comics? Okay, so uh, being in Toronto, I was aware of the Toronto Comics Anthology. And um, I work with them on volume four. Uh, for a story. So when I saw this new project, it was sort of through them and it sounded amazing. But in general, through um, like getting through to comics, uh, uh, as a really broke teenager, I read a lot of web comics, a lot, just all of them. I was really sort of blown away by the variety of artwork and of types of stories and of people around the world that were making this stuff. And I, uh, I was raised by artists. I thought I was going to be an artist. But then uh, I realized that a lot of people don't really engage with uh, really fancy high art and painting and stuff like that. Um, they just feel like, oh, this is too academic, it's not for me. And comics has this sort of more sort of casual, friendly approach where nobody, um, it's the opposite. People just automatically read it and like they engage with it really easily. So I sort of fell in love with that. and. Um, when I went to like university and stuff, I fell in love uh, with manga. I read a lot of manga, especially the uh, the quality of the artwork and the uh, the smooth sort of line work. Uh, I really really love. Um, so yeah, so I uh, I ended up deciding that that's a much more sort of exciting place to be. So started making that kind of thing. That's awesome. 
What did it start with in terms of making your own stuff? Uh, did it start here? At um, no. So uh, I did a little bit of uh, short story writing as well. Um, always weird fantasy, sort of quirky um, stuff. But no, it's it's been interesting because um, originally the stories that I uh, wrote were a little bit more horary, you know, like, oh, let's turn these corpses into booze or like, you know, let's make this time machine so I can see my dead wife, stuff like that. <laughs> and um, Toronto Comics was a really interesting thing because they have an anthology that's uh, very much all ages and very inclusive and lovely. And so it was a great challenge to just not write any corpses or bad things in this. So, uh, and, and I actually lucked out in that I could come up with something that wasn't too, too spooky even for this project too. So, so yeah, it's, it's been really cool actually. So what draws you to horror? Is it the sort of the same things that draw these girls to horror or is it different? I definitely agree with all of the points they said. I think it's not necessarily horror, but I'm just drawn to things that I haven't seen before. So things that are just new and exciting. And it could be, it could just be fun fantasy. It could be sci-fi. Uh, horror is just one of those avenues uh, of sort of exploring everything that's everything that's forbidden and, or everything that is uncomfortable and why is it uncomfortable. And so it's just sort of like an undirected sort of exploratory urge, I suppose. That's a great way of putting it. <laughs> Listening to Speech Bubble. We'll be right back. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. want to get into the individual projects that you did within the anthology and sort of a little preview of what they're about without sort of spoiling anything because I want people to read them and pick up the book. <laughs> so do we. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, um... I guess we'll start with you, Lorena. What is your story about uh, a little bit? What are the inspirations and what was it like working on it? Cool. Um, it was cool. So my uh, uh, my story, just to sort of uh, in a nutshell, it's uh, about a glowing lady. So she glows sort of like a light bulb. Uh, and it's about sort of the way she's treated because of the way she is. So it's sort of just a very mundane sort of slice of life story, but it sort of reflects how people see her and like different kinds of like feelings that she provokes, you know, stuff like some people think of her sort of like with pity or with sort of weird objectifying awe and sort of that kind of thing. It just seemed like an exciting sort of way to talk about just any sort of um, sort of like visible uh, sort of minority group and sort of like a little bit sort of things that they experience sometimes. Um, and working on it was really, really great. Uh, I have to sort of take off my hat. They have a super organized tight ship that they're running here. <laughs> so so it's been very, very comfortable. And the uh, the feedback has always been great. I'm also like really impressed that uh, sort of like the pool of artists that um, they've attracted for the project. Um, 
I thought, you know, they have like really good fits for the stories and they have like a really great variety of uh, visual styles as well. So awesome. I have to say just that I have been like dropping your story on like every interview I've done because I love it. It's so it's so all over the floor. It's yeah. smeared everywhere. It is, but oh because goodness. I love it so much. Oh, it's like, yay. it's so hard to describe is the problem. Like it's, I always find myself not explaining it properly, but it's so <laughs> lovely and it's so quiet and just like pleasant. And like, I remember telling like my best friend about it and my mom about it. And they were like, oh my God, I love that idea. <laughs> like everyone loves it. Um, and the art is beautiful. Sabah's colors just came yeah. in. Oh my God. They're gorgeous. And it's such a lovely story with another local artist who just like killed it. And it's, it's gorgeous. And it's such a lovely quiet story that really um expanded our idea of what like a monster or like a non-human being could be because we were like well that's not like you don't think of that as a monster but it like it worked so well with what we're trying to do with the book and it's such a lovely story so um it's it's not as like flashy and exciting and wham bam cool as some of our other stuff but like it's it's a really really lovely little story i felt that being like a sort of monster anthology i thought that like the pow factor was definitely gonna get covered like i was sure there's gonna be like like an awesome vampire werewolf story so like that was i'm sure i'm sure that's covered so and it seems like it's less about being an actual monster and more about being perceived as a monster totally Mm -hmm. and uh like you were saying it's sort of the experience of like all minority groups i mean as a person with disability i'm thinking about it in those terms right now so did the idea for it come from your own experience in that way or is it just stuff that you saw in like overall society or things like that um right uh i'm hispanic woohoo hola (laughs) um so a little bit from that, but uh, I've been immensely lucky, um, especially living in Toronto, which is a super inclusive, lovely city. But uh, it's just uh, still something that you're aware of and something that even here, like we're, we're pretty good at being inclusive, but there's still like some work to be done and stuff. So um, I feel like my, I haven't uh, like I've had a pretty great experience even as a minority, but I I'm very aware that that's really not the case for everyone. So it just seemed like a good point to touch on. That's awesome. Cool. So, Margo, what is your story about? And uh, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked uh, Lorena. My story is called Low Tide, and it's very heavily inspired by H.P. Lovecraft, who I absolutely am obsessed with. And I'm far from the first person to either uh, note this or do anything about it. Lovecraft was not the most... uh, Accepting, yeah, he was not the most accepting person. He was not known to be a friend to non-white, non-men. Um, I think there's been a bit of a surge in the past few years of feminist writers and uh, writers of color asserting their love for Lovecraft, while also, uh, I guess, slightly repurposing his themes and his characters and his and his monsters and his own particular brand of horror Mm -hmm. and i guess i wanted to add my voice to that noise (laughs) um the shadow over innsmouth is uh one of lovecraft's more successful stories and from the moment i read it it's one of my all-time favorite short stories and um low tide was very heavily inspired by that 
sort of combined with my love of Regency, romance, but you know, your typical Victorian Regency slash Victorian male hero uh, was also never generally the nicest, mm -hmm. most accepting person. I kind of wanted to put a bit of a spin on that. So the story is about a young woman who's basically a social outcast from London and she travels to a seaside town to become a governess and what horrors and monstrosities <laughs> she uncovers within. Dot, dot, dot. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and Allison, like, you you edited the story? Yes. So what was your experience editing it? Um, it didn't require a lot of heavy editing. You did kind of a rewrite, but that was more on your own, your own interest, I think, just sort of... Cutting pages. Yeah, yeah. It just it started really long. So I guess I guess our editing process there was a little bit of just kind of cutting some stuff down and deciding what was the, like how to focus your ideas best. But um, again, I trusted Margot, so I kind of talked through stuff with her. But it was more of like a mind exercise, I think, than it was like um, editorial suggestion or anything. Um, but I've I've also read Shadow Over Insmith, um, so I kind of. Went from the pitch kind of envisioned like what Margot was trying to do with it and it's a very like it's it's a pretty subtle story all things considered um and so right now we're um just editing Helen Robinson's art for it which is gorgeous amazing her work is incredible she's uh, an Irish artist that um applied Northern Irish Northern Irish pardon me and uh yeah so we just we're sort of editing her colors right now trying to decide on like color theory and that kind of thing how it how we want that to work but she just got it Helen yeah just got it right from it's the beginning gorgeous. like she knew what it was she knew what it's about it was up her alley I think she has previously done mm -hmm. work she did a comic version of War of the Worlds that was very atmospheric and lots of ghosty Moors type stuff. Cool. She did an incredible Walter Scott comic and uh, Bride of Lamour, what you were saying. And it's super, it was again, very gothic, very atmospheric, like what lady in a white dress out on the moors kind of thing. So seemed like a really good fit for the story. But yeah, she she did such a good job and her, her figures are so expressive, which again is really important, I think, with a gothic story. So uh, yeah, I can't wait for people to see it. It's beautiful. And anyone who's in any way a fan of Lovecraft or Victorian or Regency, I think will love the story. Did sure. you know of Helen before this anthology? No, no, she just pitched and I went. Oh. So that's, I think that's the amazing thing of working on an anthology is you get exposed mm -hmm. to so many people that you wouldn't have otherwise seen and yeah. they, they surprise you and delight you. Yeah, like the so many people in this book that, uh, yeah, whose work I wasn't necessarily, like H and Dante from Brazil as well so amazing They're so good and i was looking them up and i was like oh i have seen your work before i just and it's it was so good and i was i was sort of like kicking myself for not following their work but um uh h pueyo i hope i'm saying that correctly and dante l um they were in like the dates anthology they're doing a book in the um the gothic romance book that hope nicholson and um sm bako are doing um but yeah their work is just fantastic so yeah we, we had a bunch of people like that where we had no idea or like zavka from poland whose work is so strange and so evocative and so interesting and i really can't wait to see how people respond to that one her style is like a surreal polish movie poster from the 80s yeah like, like underground alternative wow. comics yeah. with like weird 
but consistent, so deli very deliberate, but weird proportioned bodies and like really surreal color palettes, like a lot of neon weird colors. It's very visceral, it's very strange, but we saw it and we both went, this is disgusting and I love it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're, gonna, we're gonna sandwich that right in between Cara McGee over the garden wall and, and Megan Carney. Yeah, or something. Like, yeah. <laughs> just see, yeah, we have a few that are very cute, very like animation or anime inspired. So yeah, we'll just sandwich it in between those. So it's like, yeah. A, like oh, oh. yeah, yeah. What am I reading? Yeah, it's, her work is so evocative. It's so like it's the kind of thing where like you look at it and you just kind of sit there and you have to like absorb it. But it's uh, it's super weird. So yeah, some 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 stuff like that where like I never would have known about her work and I don't know how she heard about the anthology <laughs> but I'm thrilled that she did I guess I can talk about my story unless you had other yeah, questions yeah, yeah totally doing the setup for you yeah. I was already I was already talking no problem. <laughs> um, so my editor hat is on now I guess um, so I'm trying to think of how to like I keep struggling to talk about mine without spoiling too much but um, I think I think the tagline for your story I have it in front of me. Do you want it? Because it's yeah. so. I think it's. Well, you wrote it. Didn't you? Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it was very it was good. <laughs> it is very good. But yes, please. But it, it just it just sells it. I yeah, think. Uh, thank you. Old Hollywood is soaked in sex, smoke, and self-loathing. Sam Steele may have a reputation as something of a lady killer, but his newest pursuit is a little bloodthirstier than most. Dot, dot, dot. Wow. Yeah. I love Humphrey Bogart, and I wanted to write a story uh, set in, like, a noir Hollywood, basically, like, a, in a lonely place, Maltese, Falcon feeling kind of thing. And like, I can't write a proper noir mystery, but I can write a convoluted story where people betray each other a lot, uh, which is also very <laughs> noir. So that's fine. Um, but yeah, I will say I, I did want to write a revenge story where no women were raped or murdered. So that was that was what made me want to re write this particular story. Um, and also seeing um, Emmanuel Chateauneuf on Instagram saying that she was a big Humphrey Bogart fan. And uh, I love her work. Uh, I was introduced to her through working with her on Captain Canuck, where she's um, the inker right now. And she's just fantastic. She just um, debuted her first graphic novel called Queen Street that Chapter House published. Um, and it's fantastic, really sweet, really like hopeful and fun. Um, but she's just a fantastic artist. Uh, so I realized we had this, um, this mutual love for that kind of noir genre and like Bogart in particular. So I reached out to her uh, to pitch with me on it. And because um, we did, Margot and I did both actually pitch. We didn't uh, just write ourselves into the book as much as we may have liked to. It really was fair and square. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. Um, as much as that was possible when we're reviewing each other. Yeah, questions. yeah. <laughs> but I think we also just like know each other. Like we were writing to each other's tastes as well because we have so much similar tastes. So like Margot, I didn't even know this at the time, is obsessed with old Hollywood. So she obsessed, was like, check obsessed. mark. And she was like, here's a gothic story, Allison. And I just went, yup. <laughs> just very, um, very playing to what we, we were both, I guess, had similar interests. So it wasn't a, a hard uh, sell for the other person. But do, um, do either of you listen to You Must Remember This? Yes. Not Love as it. often as I should, but yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Her, um, Katrina Longworth's episode on Judy Garland changed my life. 
I will. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. I highly okay. I recommend it almost as much as I recommend Wayward Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Sell the book. Mm-hmm. Awesome. This sounds like so super exciting. Thank you. Um, what are your hopes for the book? I know that previous anthologies from like you know the secret loves of geek girls and things have been picked up by like mainstream publishers they got picked up by like dark horse and stuff mm-hmm. you guys are in the midst of a kickstarter right now uh you were funded as you said extremely fast so what are what's the future hold right now Gosh. what do you need i haven't you know I've been so focused on just making the book. I haven't even like, I guess with, with Toronto comics, the goal is always just like break even, you know, every time there's a Kickstarter, Andrew on like the promotion circle always make jokes about how the uh, Kickstarter needs to get funded. So we won't have to sell his car. (laughs) Like it's always this sense of just, we want to break even. So right now that's even where we are. It's like, at what point can we like right now, my goal is just make it to 30 K I'd love to, because it means we can up the page rate for our contributors which I would love to be able to do so right now that's kind of where I'm at and then beyond that I like I don't have a number of books I want to sell or anything like that I just have been so focused with getting it out there so I just I hope people like it I hope it gets into a lot of hands I hope we can bring it to some conventions next year um, outside of Toronto but um, I don't know, Michael, I just like I wanted to make a book that people like and um, I haven't like thought too far beyond that. I don't know. But hopefully, yeah, I don't know. I just hope people like it and I hope that uh, we can do further printings of it. I'm not even going to hope that Dark Horse or anyone will pick it up. That would be amazing. And if they come calling, we won't say no. <laughs> but uh, I'm not. We will uh, not say no. Yeah, I'm definitely. It's not something I'm banking on or anything. Uh, Lorena, as a contributor and someone that has a stake in this anthology, but not quite as big a stake as Margot and Allison do yeah, like as the editors. Yeah, my possessions being sold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how does looking at, you know, the Kickstarter and the funding, how does that make you feel? What is the perspective of a contributor, you know, on this entire publishing operation and being involved in it and seeing it get funded and stuff. What are the feelings that come to mind? It's interesting because um, you'd almost expect it to be a roller coaster of emotion. Uh, But luckily, um, the project was very well organized and because uh, also because of the sort of template of Toronto comics that was there in place even before it all got started. I feel like everything is sort of playing out to its fullest potential, or at least it looks that way to me from the outside. Thanks. Uh, Yeah, it looks fantastic. Um, No, but mostly, I think it's just exciting. um, Well, you know, obviously for it to like sell a gazillion copies and for everybody to hear about it, mostly because I would just love for someone to be able to pick up the book and you know, just have no idea what they're in for and just totally have their socks blown off. That that really would be the the main goal and game uh, for it. Um, and again, it's one of those things, like, I mean, paying rent is fantastic, but uh, if you're into comics, um, it's more like you're, you really want to, you know, create something that people are going to love. And that's really sort of first and foremost. And I mean, I feel like that's what ends up being most profitable anyway, to actually make something people are going to 
be really excited about. So, <laughs> was this your first time being published by someone else, like in this way, or had you had, um, you had experience before for comics? Um, this was sort of my second official sort of book because it was Wayward Sisters and before there was a Toronto Comics Anthology. Um, before that... Hogtown Horrors. Oh, yeah. Oh, Uh. I forgot about that. Yes. (laughs) Yes, also Hogtown Horror. Um, but it's all, it's all been in the past, like, couple years. Right. Or so, uh, I have, like, a couple of short stories, uh, out there in the world somewhere. Um, but yeah, it's still all very new and very exciting. So, uh, I'm still amazed and very 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 grateful whenever someone's like wow that's actually kind of good so yes <laughs> amazing so it is very exciting and that's awesome are there any projects you guys are working on outside of uh wayward sisters that you want to promote a little bit lorena you're working I, I on can, something i can take you? that yeah. one yeah so right now uh i am illustrating uh i happen to be an illustrator too uh i'm illustrating these uh new vampire hunting uh, graphic novel length story. That sounds cool. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's Malcolm Derrick's writing it. Uh, so he edits Toronto Comics. And we met through Hawkdown Horror, actually. He was my editor mm-hmm. for that. So yeah, so um, he's written um, sort of a really interesting, uh, sort of pragmatic vampire story. So it's a lot more about, uh, in practical terms, what it would actually be like to hunt people in an urban setting. It's about sort of like the people that don't really get noticed in city in cities, uh, you know, stuff like homeless people and and people in like really high density sort of neighborhoods, that kind of thing. So so yeah, so it's gonna be super exciting, and uh, I'm doing some illustrating for that. It's still very much in the development stage, but it's going to be amazing when it does appear. So. I'm very excited. Yeah, that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention before we go. Uh, right now, as we're recording this, uh, Toronto has been blessed because the Art Gallery Ontario has the Guillermo del Toro yes. exhibit, yes. which runs uh, from now until I think beginning of January. Yeah, it's there until January 7th. January 7th. And all this talk about H.P. Lovecraft and horror and gothic stuff and Victorian stuff. I wanted to ask you guys if you'd been and if you had been, what did you think of it? And, uh, you know, what do you think of it coming to Toronto? We, I mean, some of us might be aware of Guillermo del Toro's love Mm -hmm. of the city in general. Uh, others listening to this might not. So give give us your impressions of, of the exhibit. Uh, even if you haven't been, what was your reaction when you heard that it was coming? Because it seems pretty perfect for Halloween and perfect uh, as a dovetail from, from this anthology a little bit. Have you guys seen it yet? I've been bad. Not yet. Not yet. I've been meaning to go, but... Well, I can can take this one then. I do intend to go again, but I I actually went during members previews at like 11 in the morning because I just didn't want there to be a crowd. (laughs) I have been super excited about this since it actually, it opened in LA shortly after I was there a couple years ago. And I was like, no. So I was so upset to miss it and so thrilled when it was coming to Toronto uh, to answer that question. But um, the exhibit's fantastic. Like I... Uh, I'm definitely a fan of uh, Del Toro's work. Uh, I actually saw him give uh, a talk at TIFF a few years ago on the Gothic that I really loved. Um, 
I just like I love hearing him talk like just the breadth of his knowledge and the like how many things he's read and watched and analyzed like it's it's fantastic and I love I love him as a like a cultural critic I guess he's a true he's a true believer yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and not just like in like he's such a fanboy but he's so thoughtful about it you know and I just I love listening to him talk about stuff so just like getting his perspective on things even just through little like tags on you know and um descriptions of the different pieces in the collection i really enjoyed and it's cool because like it's because it's at the ago it's also um sub the collection is supplemented by pieces from the ago's collection Mm -hmm. uh which i found great because then it's like you know that it is a little different it is a little unique to us and now there's a a shape of water poster in there like james jean's original is in there so we get that and i don't think that was at the other exhibit so yay toronto Mm -hmm. but yeah no i just i just loved it and walking through it and just reading like and seeing the way that he talks about monsters and thinks about monsters it was um I was like, yeah, like you get me, Guillermo. Like these are all the things I've been thinking about my whole life and all the reasons that I've loved monsters my whole life. And, um, you know, it was so many of the same reasons that I originally came up with this book idea, I think, like just that love and not just because monsters are cool, which they are, but that they are interesting as you know, outsiders and outcasts. And as Lorena was saying, like they're exploring what's forbidden and what's taboo and all of those things um, are sort of discussed and explored in the exhibit as well as just being, you know, having a bunch of stuff that's really cool. Like I was really excited to see uh, Bernie Wrightson's illustrations from Frankenstein. Like I almost cried and they had, um, you know, like a bunch of uh, Mike Mignola's original pages from Hellboy, and they had a bunch of illustrations from um, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. <gasps> the Stephen Gamel or Gamel? I know, I literally, I was in there by myself in this room, and I looked over at the wall, and I went, <gasps> no way like out loud to myself and all these other people were sort of around me and i'd see it here like i was staring at them and this guy's like oh yeah i think i remember these they were like books when we were kids (laughs) and then walked away (laughs) and i was like you don't understand what you're looking at this is our collective nightmares i know like how many kids do you think that kicked off the love of horror. Yeah. Like and how many kids uh, did that kick off insomnia? Like, those books were terrifying, <laughs> right? But it wasn't the stories. It, it was, was the, the pictures. pictures. Yeah. yeah, it was the pictures. And so, to get to... And they weren't even necessarily the most frightening of them. Like, they didn't have, you know, like, the woman with the hole in her face. There's that famous one everyone, I think, remembers. But, um... What, the rat that they thought was a dog? Was that one there? No. They shaved the dog and it turned out it was a rat. No, I don't think they, they didn't have that one. And they that didn't have like the, 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 there's also that like creepy scarecrow. The, like from the cover. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there are a few, I think the people, but like just seeing them at all, like his original drawings, I was like amazed that this hadn't come up in any of the reviews I'd seen or any of the photo galleries that people had made of the exhibit. Um, so some of that stuff was super exciting to see just because it was so informed, like, formative for me <laughs> growing up but yeah it's it's just fantastic like i think if you're a fan of del toro's work of horror in general um or even of just like pop cultural ephemera it's really cool and it's really broad like it's got um a bunch of stuff from his own films a bunch of art pieces based on his films but also you know a bunch of like concept art from disney films and stuff like that it's it's really broad and it's really interesting and it's really dense so there's a lot to see 
so dense i yeah i went and i think we got through the exhibit just as like the 10 minute bell for the closing mm-hmm. of the museum was um chiming I'm <laughs> uh and i still want to go back i mm-hmm. there's still things that i just want to see because like it's not that i felt rushed but there's so much stuff that i probably missed or didn't get to see in in detail mm-hmm. it's, it's so dense as to be like really overwhelming like the first time you you see it and just also like the bizarreness of having like kind of life-size versions of hp lovecraft in your it's it's really weird and and then you go into this one room not to spoil anything but uh he's got like this rain room because he mm-hmm. likes working in the rain <laughs> but so he got like special effects people that he knows to make him a room where it always looks like it's raining Raining outside. Raining yeah. outside. Against the window. Against the window. Yes. And then, like, you can hear the rain, like, piped through the room. And they explain it like this is a room in his house where he likes to work, mm-hmm. where it's, like, infinitely raining all the time. That is so gothic. It's so gothic. So gothic. <laughs> and, then, and there's, like, a statue of Edgar Allan Poe in there, just because, of course, there of course. is. So gothic. I loved the Frankenstein room as well. Yeah. Um,. I, again, one of those things that was so here, Alice, like I'm obsessed with Frankenstein. So a full room of Frankenstein was so exciting to me, but like, I loved the statue of Dr. Pretorius from Bride of Frankenstein. And I feel like there's probably 10 other people that will go to that exhibit and get as excited as I did about that statue. (laughs) Um, But it's so perfect. And like the expression on his face is like just the right amount of bitchy. It's like amazing. (laughs) Um, But there's just like weird stuff like that. And like the characters from Todd Browning's Freak where it was sort of like man I did not expect to see that when I came in here and I like I wonder how many people like what responses are going to be to that especially from people who maybe aren't familiar with that film so I feel like there's just like this there's a really huge a range of stuff you're going to encounter if you go in there. It's he's he's teaching the children. Like yeah. he's really teaching the children yeah. everything they need to know, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for awesome. the comic fan, there's like a room where you just can read comics surrounded by his comic collection. Or I think something. that yeah, the the comics if the what you I think what you're thinking of is um they were actually provided by the Beguiling. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it's still so there are some Canadians represented in that ah, collection, I which see, I was excited. I got so okay. stoked and I was like, Guillermo's Red Chapter House yeah. comics? Um, but it was uh, to, provided by the Beguiling, oh, which is still okay. super cool though. So they have like, um, yeah, it's just a wall covered in, in comics, um, but it's, it looks really cool and it's still like, and it's still thematically linked because you do get a bunch of the pieces from his collection that are either old comics or pages from comics and stuff like it's got a bunch of Richard Corbin and stuff like that in addition to like the rights and the manual and stuff. Right. I guess I put a little bit more importance to it because a security guard scolded me for leaning against the wall. So I thought, oh my God, there's like actual comics here. I have to... <laughs> We need to be able to resell them. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, Anyway, you guys, that's perfect. Thank you for uh, being here. Thank you for sharing everything. This is perfect. Uh, You know, right in time for Halloween and everything. So uh, I really hope that people continue to donate to the Kickstarter. Me too. Uh, Let me know what is the link, where can people follow the project, and where can people find you guys online? Let's start with 
with you, Allison? Um, so the project, you can just search up Wayward Sisters on Kickstarter. We don't have like a fancy link for it, but if you look up Wayward Sisters, um, it should bring you right there. It's called Wayward Sisters, an anthology of monstrous women is like the full title. Um, you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at WS Anthology. Um, and we are Wayward Sisters Anthology on Facebook, um, as well as on Tumblr. So it's just waywardsistersanthology.tumblr.com. For me, I am Allison M. O'Toole, so A-L-L-I-S-O-N-M as in Margaret, O-T-O-O-L-E. And you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram with that handle. Nice. Margo? You can find me through the Wayward Sisters Instagram. Um, <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> my other social media links are fairly private, I suppose you would say, but... Yeah. But yeah, Margot's doing good, good work at the uh, at the <laughs> Wayward Sisters Instagram, and I like I appreciate that you've been putting little little jokes and stuff up there. So yeah, that's that's definitely a good place to see get stuff from Margot. Instagram is fun, and I'm expressing I'm expressing my true personality through yeah. the Wayward yeah. Sisters <laughs> Instagram. That's where you can that's where you can find me online. We'll yeah, put it at that. Cool. Uh, for me, uh, I think Instagram is right now the best way, uh, which is um, it's a weird handle. It's at L-S-Z-I-A-N for some reason. Um, and Is yeah, there it's a story behind that? Um, it's like Lorena and then Sophia is my middle name. And uh, the rest of it, Zian, is the name of, like, the first god-awful character I wrote when I was, like, 10. Perfect. Yeah, so. You still have that, like, it's funny how people... How yeah. dedicated people are to their it was um, their OCs. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, it, it sort of happened by mistake in that I sort of kept it, and then it uh, was too late, and that's what it was all over the mm-hmm. internet. And so I figured, you know, I'll just I'll keep it. I'll be embarrassing. It's fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, generally that's the best way. Or with a Ouija board, I'm sure all of us can be contacted mm-hmm. as well. We are ghosts. That's awesome. Uh, thank you guys for coming in. And uh, it's, it's been, it's been a delight. I think we've, we've covered everything possible. So uh, we'll <laughs> see you next time on speech bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.